Hello and welcome to An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. We explore the Book of Mormon with the assumption that science worked the same then as it does now and that the characters are real people with the same types of feelings and tendencies as you and me today. The views and opinions expressed here are strictly those of the narrator and should not be considered official interpretations in any way. And now An Engineer's Journey Through the Book of Mormon. Hello and welcome back. Let me start by addressing a question that I've been asked. What is the significance of this being an engineer's journey through the Book of Mormon? If, like, is, is someone going to do, for example, an accountant's journey through the Book of Mormon or a dentist insights into Second Nephi, for example? So my work as an engineer requires me to understand how things work, and my particular job often requires me to explain how things work to other people. For several years above my desk, I had a list of principles that guided my engineering efforts. One of these was when you hear hoofbeats, look for horses, not zebras. In other words, start with obvious answers and explanations. Unusual things are going to be unusual. The behavior of people around us generally has a rational explanation. So, I approach the Book of Mormon as if the people in ancient Jerusalem and North America would usually behave rationally as well. A second principle above my desk was a quote from Vernon Dursley in the Harry Potter series. There's no such thing as magic. There's an explanation for everything. We may not understand it yet, but it exists. For example, the mysterious Liahona that we'll meet in a few episodes. To Lehi and his family, it was it was a miracle like magic, but it wasn't magic to the person who made it. Someone built it and knew how it worked. That's the reason, uh, if you're curious, that my banner shows a Liahona with gears. And that remains my mindset as I study the scriptures and learn about the gospel. Things need to make sense. That doesn't mean I expect to understand everything, but erratic behavior will be unusual. I don't believe in magic, and everything ultimately will have a rational explanation. Hence, the engineer's journey through the Book of Mormon. Okay, at the end of the last episode, we asked the question, how far outside of Jerusalem was Lehi's camp? Oh, and we got an answer from Marion up in Logan. Seemed to be getting a lot of Logan traction lately. She responded. She said the answer is in 1 Nephi chapter 2, verse 6. So we're going to go there. And it came to pass that when he had traveled three days in the wilderness, he pitched his tent in a valley by the side of the river of water. And it came to pass that he built an altar of stones and made an offering unto the Lord and gave thanks unto the Lord our God. Now, I had heard that Jews living within three days' travel of the temple were expected to make their sacrifices at the temple. So was there any significance in Lehi traveling three days' distance from Jerusalem and then making sacrifices? I asked ChatGPT. Now, given ChatGPT's tendency to sometimes invent things, take this with a grain of salt, but but it's interesting nonetheless. It said, the idea that the boundary for sacrifice was approximately a three-day journey from the temple in Jerusalem is based on a rabbinic tradition known as three-day walk. According to this tradition, the boundary for sacrifice extended to a distance that could reasonably be covered within a three-day journey on foot from Jerusalem. The concept of three-day walk 
it continues, is not explicitly stated in the Torah or other biblical texts. Instead, it is a later interpretation and legal ruling that emerged within rabbinic Judaism. The rabbi sought to provide practical guidance for the Israelites living far from Jerusalem or during periods when it was challenging to travel to the temple. By establishing a three-day walking distance as the boundary for sacrifice, the rabbis allowed those who lived beyond that distance to offer certain types of sacrifices locally, independent of the central temple. This helped ensure that people could fulfill their religious obligations, even if they were unable to travel to Jerusalem. So, Lehi went three days from the temple and made sacrifices. I found that to be interesting. All right, at the risk of stating the obvious, chapter 7 seems to be a continuation of chapter 6. Now, that's not surprising because, well, they were actually originally part of the same chapter. What do I mean by that? Well, in the 1830 edition of the Book of Mormon, First Nephi only had seven chapters. What The original chapter 1, for example, contained our chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. The original chapter 2 was chapter 6 through 9, and so on. So, our modern-day chapter breaks were created by Orson Pratt in the 1879 version of the Book of Mormon. He also broke the chapters into verses. He was given this assignment by President John Taylor. If you're curious, the Bible underwent a similar process several hundred years ago. Archbishop Langton, in about 1227 A.D., is responsible for the Bible's current chapter divisions. Then, in 1448 A.D., a Jewish rabbi named Nathan divided the Hebrew Bible into verses, and that's where verses came from. And in 1555, Robert Estienne, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, divided the New Testament into verses as well. Now we resume with Lehi and his family. Although the Book of Mormon does not tell us how much time had passed, chapter 7 appears to take place shortly after Nephi and his brothers returned from Jerusalem with the brass plates. In chapter 517, after Nephi and his brothers returned from Jerusalem, it says, Lehi was filled with the Spirit and began to prophesy concerning his seed. Now, perhaps the discussion of his future posterity made him aware that if if you go to a new land with only four sons, you're not going to have any posterity. So this is how chapter 7 begins. And this is Nephi speaking. He says, And now I would that you might know that after my father Lehi had made an end of prophesying concerning his seed, it came to pass that the Lord spake unto him again, saying that it was not meet for him, Lehi, that he should take his family into the wilderness alone but that his sons should take daughters to wife, that they might raise up seed unto the Lord in the land of promise. Lehi commanded his sons to return to Jerusalem and bring Ishmael and his family into the wilderness so they could have children in the promised land. Verse 3 says, And it came to pass that I, Nephi, did again with my brethren go forth into the wilderness to go up to Jerusalem. I've wondered about whether Lehi's family was camped alone there in the Valley of Lemuel. If if you think about it, after Lehi left Jerusalem, there is no explicit mention um, of him ever meeting another human other than his own family and, and Ishmael's family ever again. 
And I have to wonder, did they really go all the way from Jerusalem to the New World without seeing anyone? I mean, did they never pass through towns or settlements or oases? In chapter 8, it will tell us that they gather seeds and grains for their journey. So in preparing to leave the Valley of Lemuel, were they scavenging for these supplies from the wilderness? Uh, picking grain and seeds that conveniently happened to be growing where they were at? Or did they buy supplies from someone? Or maybe they had already gathered supplies before they left. But just because Nephi doesn't explicitly introduce us to people doesn't mean there were no people. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, as they say. So I, I want to broach this subject now because it becomes more interesting. We're going to talk about it more when they arrive in the promised land. Was the promised land empty and unoccupied? We'll go into that much later. Uh, so continuing, And it came to pass that we went up unto the house of Ishmael, and we did gain favor in the sight of Ishmael, and so much that we did speak unto him the words of the Lord. Verse 4 is interesting because Nephi used the word we, meaning Nephi and his brothers. It reads, we did speak unto him the words of the Lord. The phrasing makes it sound like Laman and Lemuel helped speak the words of the Lord to persuade Ishmael. A lot of people like to talk about Laman and Lemuel's willingness to return to Jerusalem to recruit Ishmael's family or of their helping to persuade Ishmael with a lot of, you know, winking and nudging. They point out that Laman and Lemuel did not murmur about this assignment to go get girls. As we'll see shortly, it seems likely that Nephi and his brothers may have already had friendships or connections with Ishmael's family and with his daughters. In my opinion, and and this is only my opinion, I I would not be surprised if there had already been discussions of marriage. Marriages at the time were generally arranged. You know, think of the examples that we have in, in the Bible with Isaac and so on. And if if Lehi's sons were not already betrothed to Ishmael's daughters, such a betrothal would obviously have been implied by their invitation to join them on their journey. Verse 8 says, And it came to pass that the Lord did soften the heart of Ishmael and also his household, insomuch that they took their journey with us down into the wilderness to the tent of our father. Okay, so how many people are we talking about? Let's do a quick head count. Verse 6 tells of an argument that was brewing, but it also lists the members of the group. We have Ishmael and his wife, the two sons of Ishmael and their families, meaning the two sons of Ishmael were already married before this journey started, Laman and Lemuel, and there's two daughters of Ishmael who get grouped with Laman and Lemuel, then Sam and Nephi and Ishmael's other three daughters. Ishmael had one more daughter than Lehi had sons, but Zoram had recently joined Lehi's group, which made for five matched pairs. And I have to wonder if that's why the mission to retrieve the plates happened first, before the mission to get Ishmael's family. Would Ishmael have been willing to join Lehi in the wilderness if there was no one to marry his oldest daughter, who, who is who Zoram marries? Anyway, as they traveled back to the wilderness, Laman and Lemuel and two of Ishmael's daughters, along with Ishmael's married sons and their families, decided they would rather stay in Jerusalem than join Lehi in the wilderness. Verse 6 says that this small faction did rebel. He uses the term, did rebel against Nephi and Sam, Ishmael and his wife, and the other three daughters. Now, 
Okay, so Nephi was an amazing man, an amazing prophet, utterly valiant in keeping the commandments and following the Lord. But a diplomat, he was not. We saw the beginning of a pattern in the cave outside Jerusalem after their failed attempt to to bribe Laban for the plates. In this pattern, Nephi will reprimand his brothers, and they will get angry. And someone, whether it's God, an angel, or someone else, someone needs to step in and de-escalate the situation. And then the brothers apologize and genuinely repent, and life goes on. So, Laman and the others rebelled, it said. And rebel might seem like a strong word, but Ishmael was the leader of the group. In historic Jerusalem, being a grown-up or, or even being married did not remove you from your father's jurisdiction. We see this with Ishmael's sons and with Lehi's sons as well. They were expected to obey their father, apparently, for as long as he was alive. So if Ishmael were to die, to whom would his sons show allegiance? That's called foreshadowing, by the way, and we won't cover it in today's discussion. But in any case, Laman and Lemuel and Ishmael's sons threatened to leave Ishmael's group, and that was considered rebellion. Now, listen to Nephi's words to his brethren. Bear in mind that he said this to them in front of their ladies who they were doubtless trying to impress. Verse 8, And now I, Nephi, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts, therefore I spake unto them, saying, even unto Laman and Lemuel, Behold, ye are mine elder brethren, and how is it that ye are so hard in your hearts and so blind in your minds that ye have need that I, your younger brother, should speak unto you, yea, and set an example for you? And he goes on like this for seven more verses. I won't read them here. But Nephi reminds his brothers of the angel they've seen. He reminds them of their miraculous deliverance from from Laban. He reminds them that Jerusalem will be destroyed. He spends a few of these verses trying to persuade them to be faithful to God's commands. And he reminds them that those at Jerusalem want to kill their father. Quote, insomuch they have driven them out of the land. And he concluded with verse 15, now behold, I say unto you that if you will return unto Jerusalem, ye shall also perish with them. And now, if ye have choice, go up to the land, and remember the words which I speak unto you, that if ye go, ye will also perish. For thus the Spirit of the Lord constraineth me that I should speak. How would you have responded to that kind of a lecture by your younger brother in front of your fiance and her parents? I'm not excusing Laman and Lemuel. I'm just saying that if we're honest with ourselves, our our natural inclinations might be to react the way that they did. So how did they react? And it came to pass that when I, Nephi, had spoken these words unto my brethren, they were angry with me. And it came to pass that they did lay their hands upon me, for behold, they were exceedingly wroth. And they did bind me with cords, for they sought to take away my life, that they might leave me in the wilderness to be devoured by wild beasts. So they responded by grabbing Nephi and binding him with cords. I assumed that they wanted to restrain him and leave him to die in the wilderness. But that's not quite what it says. It says, And they did bind me with cords, for they sought to take away my life, that they might leave me in the wilderness to be devoured by wild beasts. It sounds as though the plan was to kill him first and leave him dead rather than abandon him to die. 
Even more likely, they probably had no plan. They just wanted to be done with Nephi and they were angry. So picture trying to tie someone up on the open range, especially someone who is, quote, large in stature. It would have been violent and it would have taken several people. Eventually they bound him with cords. Nephi prayed for strength to to burst the bands which bound him, quote, and it came to pass that when I had said these words, behold, the bands were loosed from off my hands and feet. It doesn't explicitly say that he broke the bands, but they came loose. And then, having escaped the cords in, in, in what I can only describe as a complete failure to read the room, Nephi said, I stood before my brethren and I spake unto them again. And verse 19 says, And it came to pass that they were angry with me again, and sought to lay hands upon me. At this point, one of Ishmael's daughters intervened. It seems that there was one of these daughters who had a kind of a sweet spot for Nephi. She was joined by her mother and one of her brothers. They pled with Laman and Lemuel, quote, insomuch that they did soften their hearts and they did cease striving to take away my life. And it came to pass that they were sorrowful because of, of their wickedness, insomuch that they did bow down before me and did plead with me that I would forgive them of the thing which they had done against me. Imagine how difficult it would be to even give an apology to your little brother under those circumstances. To say nothing of bowing down and begging for forgiveness. I really don't understand people who describe Laman and Lemuel as perpetually wicked. Verse 21 describes Nephi's response. And it came to pass that I did frankly forgive them all that they had done. And I did exhort them that they would pray unto the Lord their God for forgiveness. And it came to pass that they did so. And after they had done praying unto the Lord, we did again travel on our journey towards the tent of our father. Laman and Lemuel repented. Were their hearts permanently changed? Oh no. Would they eventually get upset with Nephi again? Oh yes, indeed. But what could they have done more than they did? Nephi also gets kudos for frankly forgiving them for attempting murder and uh, resuming the, the journey. No mention of salmonness. So I, I may have been a little unfair to Nephi earlier. If we go back to verse 2 at the beginning of the chapter, bringing Ishmael and his family into the wilderness was a commandment from God. So Nephi couldn't just let his brothers go back. And he knew, as he said in First Nephi 3.7, that if he did everything he could, the Lord would provide a way to make keeping the commandment possible. Now, ultimately, it was... Ishmael's wife and two of his children that persuaded the the rebels to stay with the group. And if Nephi hadn't confronted his brothers and escalated the situation, Ishmael's wife and children might not have intervened. So as in chapter four, he knew not beforehand what he would do, but he had to do something. Okay, back to verse 22. And it came to pass that we did come down under the tent of our father. And after I and my brethren and all the house of Ishmael had come down unto the tent of my father. They did give thanks unto the Lord their God, and they did offer sacrifice and burnt offerings unto him. Before we wrap up, I'll ask a trivia question. Email your answer to bomjourney at gmail.com. That's B-O-M-Journey, all one word with no spaces. Here's the question. Did Nephi have sisters? If you know the answer, send it in. Also cite your source or explain how you know it. So that's the question. Did Nephi have sisters? 
and we will see you next time. 